Good morning, everybody. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And I want to join Ray and the other pastors in welcoming all of you here this morning. We're excited to see you, everyone, all of our adorable faces, young and older. Uh, we're glad that you're in here with us this morning. Um, here's what we're going to do. Uh, in our time together, I'm going to kind of update you a little bit on some announcements we made last week and some information you were given this morning. And then we're going to jump back into our text in the book of 1 John chapter 5. So here's what you can do for me. If you would go ahead and grab your Bibles if you brought one with you this morning. If not, we have some Bibles on tray tables behind the chairs. Feel free to jump up and grab one of those Bibles. You can use it this morning. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one and let that be our gift to you. We're going to be in it this morning for the majority of our time, and we'll be in the book of 1 John chapter 5. But while you're turning there, uh, you should have received, or as a family, at least one of you in a family should have received uh, another handout on your way in. Uh, if you received one of these, if you want to go ahead and get it out, uh, if you did not receive one of these, don't worry, I'm going to actually read part of it to you. Uh, if you've been in one of our membership classes that I've taught, you know that in there I actually read our documents to you. I know you're an adult and I'm an adult and we're not used to reading to each other, but at least this way I know that you've heard things that we've said when I do that. So if you want to grab this and pull it out, if you didn't get one on your way in, uh, you can grab one on your way out. But this is just an update uh, on where we are and where we're going uh, in relation in particular to our Redemption Hill Kids Ministry. Because if you were here with us last week or you heard online, uh, we are taking time this summer to intentionally equip and train volunteers to partner with parents in the cultivation of the souls of our children. It's that important to us that we're actually going to take time to intentionally do that in a way that, that fits what we desire for our kids and reflects what we say we're about. I mean, we're about the cultivation of gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people, young and older. And so we're actually taking time to, to do that in a way that fits who we say we are and what we're about. And so that's why this week and in weeks to come, you'll find as you, as you gather in here, uh, all of our families and children with us because we're taking time to cultivate and train uh, teachers who are equipped and engaged to do what it is we desire to do with our kids on Sunday morning in their classes. Um, and if you look at this sheet, it'll just give you a little bit of an update. Where we are um, is what I just explained, that Redemption Hill kids' classes are temporarily under construction. Uh, we are rebuilding these classes to relaunch them uh, in a way that is absolutely on target with what we want to accomplish and what we say we're about here. Uh, but what I want you to pay attention to as we take a couple of minutes here is that next section, uh, where we're headed. Because uh, I want you to get a taste and, and get a sense of the excitement that, that we have and, and I know that I have for where we're going with this and why we're doing it. But if you look at that section, it says it will not only be relaunching a more consistent and trained volunteer base that will profit our kids, but we're also launching a curriculum change that will profit the whole family. Because we aim to partner with parents to cultivate the souls of our children, we're transitioning all of our classes to a new curriculum. It's called the Gospel Story for Kids. And this curriculum better helps moms and dads build a gospel-centered foundation for their children. We're pretty excited about it, and I hope you will be too. And here are some reasons why we're really excited about this. This curriculum is truly gospel-centered. It reveals how Jesus is the ultimate end of every story, every book, and every letter of scripture. Each class, so each age that we will have classes for in Redemption Hill Kids, will be learning the same text and memorizing the same scripture each week at age-appropriate depths. This allows parents to easily review the lessons with their entire family. So if you have more than one child, 
you know how exciting this will be to be able to sit down with your kids from ages three to ages eight and review and teach and, and, and help cultivate the same lesson with each of your kids. Um, Lastly, uh, even more, the Gospel Story Curriculum has a corresponding story Bible and a a five-day-a-week family devotional that's designed for 10 minutes a day that builds upon the Sunday lesson. So in our classes, all of the lessons will be taught from this story Bible, and every person in every family has the opportunity to have this story Bible in their home that connects the person of Jesus to every story in the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and has questions that will help you connect Jesus to that story for your kids. And then there's a devotional that goes along with that. There goes that. Five days a week. It has a devotional that corresponds to each of the stories that correspond to what your kids will be learning on Sunday that will help you moms and dads to better teach these these truths to your kids. So it's not just simply reviewing a story and asking questions. It gives you helps in how to have object lessons and stories and and ways to help you teach this to your kids. So this has quickly become a favorite in our house. In fact, you can even see Piper, our our baby's notes, when we first started to read it. Those are her notes on what we were doing. Uh, This has become one of our fast favorites and so is this. And one of the things about this curriculum is that it goes Genesis through Revelation in three years. And so as your kids continue to get older and they change classes, every three years they'll be going through through the Bible again. So when my three-year-old starts this in the fall, when she ages up to six, she gets to start in Genesis again. And when she ages up to where we generally bring kids in here at nine, she will have gone through the entire Bible multiple times on Sunday and throughout the week with her mom and dad. We're very excited about this because what we believe the church's responsibility is, I'm dropping everything this morning, um, is to partner with moms and dads is really to equip you so that you can do the work of cultivating the soul of your children. And we play a role in helping you with that. And the big role that we play is equipping you. And so this change and this curriculum is gonna help us take a huge step forward in doing that, uh, to give you tools and to connect the home and to connect the Sunday gathering of the church together for the sake of your family and for the sake of your kids. Um, So that's where we're headed. And I'm so excited about this. And I want you to be excited about this. And and this isn't on the paper. And and again, I'm gonna, I preach announcements, I'm sorry about this. But I just want you to think about this. As I thought about it with my kids and thought about what they would learn just in the few years that they're back there and how it connects to what we're doing at home, I just want you to think about what this means for you if you would choose to serve in helping to teach our kids on Sunday. If you, if you felt like God would use you and your time on Sunday morning to help do this for our kids, could you imagine that over a period of, of time, let's just say you did this, this is what you did every week for our kids, to teach our kids when you came on Sunday morning before you came into the service. Every few years, you would actually teach through the entire Bible. I mean, do you want an understanding of the scriptures from a gospel-centered, Jesus-centered perspective? you will have the capacity to teach through the entire Bible at a a level that a child can understand. And you wanna be effective in your ministry to your friends and your neighbors? Become equipped in being able to teach the Bible. And this is what we're doing. So it's not just for our kids and our families, even for those who serve our kids on Sundays. This is helping to equip you, understand the scriptures from a gospel-centered perspective and helping to equip you, which is another one of our aims, to equip those of you who serve to be able to communicate these truths even to children. And so as I talked to some college students this week, I was thinking that in their time in college, if they served the family of the church by teaching a children's class on Sunday, by the time that they graduated, they would have taught through the entire Bible from a gospel-centered perspective to our kids. It's pretty cool. So you get to do that as well. Um, What this means for you, just a few things. If you're a parent, 
Uh, it means that you have the opportunity to worship together with your entire family alongside the rest of the Redemption Hill Church family right now. You have the chance to model for your children and lead your children in, in singing, greeting others, and, and hearing the same message. And so we know that this will take some adjusting for you and your family, more involvement from you on Sunday mornings. And so on the back of the sheet, in just a second, when you flip it over, we've provided some guiding thoughts uh, that, that we hope that will help you um, and embrace this opportunity to lead your children and model the priority of corporate worship on Sunday. Um, to help ease the transition, uh, we've actually, for those, we talked about this last week, expanded the transition room in the cafeteria. And so throughout the service, if you need to take one of your children back into the cafeteria, we've expanded the space. We have a video projector and feed that goes back there so that you can watch and listen to the sermon while you're back there with your kids. There's space for that. There are people back there. Uh, you don't have to feel uncomfortable about that. Honestly, it does not bother me. I don't get distracted by that. It does, if you need to get up and, and step out, but that's back there for you so that you can stay engaged and follow along with what we're doing while you, you take care of your children. Um, for all of the attenders, for everybody who calls at home, uh, this means that you should expect Sunday morning to look a little different for a while. And this is one of the keys we just want everybody who calls this place home to get. Think more family dinner and less date night. When we gather together in this room, think about it being like a family dinner, maybe a family reunion and less like a date night with you and your wife or you and your spouse. There are gonna be kids there's going to be commotion. There's going to be rustling. There's going to be noise. There's going to be questions. There are going to be things like that, and we actually welcome them. Um, uh, we trust you'll be able to welcome our, our littlest members of the family and show them grace and patience as they adjust to the larger service. And we're praying that God will quickly call many of you to love and serve our families by committing to regularly teach our children. So please prayerfully consider if you'd like to serve our king and your fellow RH family members in this way. And then as you flip over, there's some information on the back, what you can do, how you can get more information about the classes that we're offering on Sunday morning at 8.30 and Wednesday night at 7 that Deneen Kostik is, is teaching to equip our teachers and volunteers to serve Christ and to serve our family with the kids. And that last half of the page are, are just things you can do as family. And, and even those of you who, who don't have children who are here, please take the time to read those as well because you can come along and help support our families here uh, by understanding what it is they're doing and, and you can even come up with some ways to help them in these things as they talk about the Bible with their kids and, and they, they begin to lead their kids in listening and participating with the music. But we want you to read this. Uh, hopefully this serves you and, and gives you some information on what we're doing and how we're going to do it and why we're so excited about it. So if you didn't get one of these, grab it on your way out um, and we'll continue to communicate with you throughout the summer uh, what's going on and the progress that we're making in this. But this is a, just an absolute gift of God's grace that we could do this and have the time to do this well. So that's that. Um, hopefully you've got your Bibles. First John chapter five, giving you some time to get open there. Let me set this up for you uh, if you are new with us or a guest with us this morning. Uh, the man that wrote this letter in the Bible, his name was John. And by all accounts that we know from the gospels, which are the story of Jesus' life and ministry, John, who wrote this letter, was Jesus' best friend. He was there with Jesus during his entire ministry on the earth. He was there for all the teaching. He was there for all of the miracles. He was there for the entirety of Jesus' ministry on this earth. He was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified in our place for our sin. And if you remember from the gospel story, it was while Jesus was on the cross that he looked down at the foot of the cross and all those people who had gathered to, to witness this spectacle. And he looks down and who does he see? He sees John. And who's John standing next to? Standing next to Jesus' mom, Mary. And what did Jesus say to John? He told John that when he was gone to take care of his mom. 
And he looked at his mom and he said, Mom, this man is now your son. What a Mother's Day gift. The man that you leave the care of your mother to is someone that's very, very important and near and dear to your heart. This was who John was to Jesus. John not only was with Jesus during his ministry, Jesus not only handed off the care and the nurture of his own mom to him, but John saw the resurrected Jesus. After Jesus had suffered and died and God raised him from the dead, John saw him face to face. John touched him, this man who he had loved and this man who had loved him so much. And after he saw the resurrected Jesus, John, who wrote this letter, was obedient to Jesus' instructions and Jesus' commands to his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them, being witnesses to them about who Jesus was and what he had done and what that means, to go and be witnesses to everybody about the power and authority and majesty of Jesus. John, Jesus' best friend, one of the disciples, was faithful to that promise. And as he did that, John, who was Jesus' best friend, became a pastor to the church. And throughout his ministry, bearing witness to Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, the good news about Jesus, people all around him tried to, tried to kill him. They tried to stop him. He was beaten. He was tortured. They attempted to boil him alive. And when they couldn't stop him, and when they couldn't kill him, they set him off on an island all by himself. They exiled him out to an island, just hoping that he would die alone in this place. But they couldn't kill him. And instead of suffering and dying alone on this island, do you know what happened? God brought him up into the heavens and gave him a vision of the exalted Jesus on the throne. The book of Revelation. This was Jesus' best friend. They couldn't stop him and they couldn't kill him. And so when they brought him back from exile, he found himself as an old man, an old pastor, in the region where he had done his ministry, in the region of Ephesus. And as he had labored and proclaimed the gospel, and while he was gone in exile, the church continued to grow. More churches, just like this one, were started in cities and regions and in areas all around the place. And when John came back from exile, he saw churches that had grown up and people who had come to know Jesus, people whose lives were changed. And as he began to help pastor and shepherd those people, he realized that just as there had been people who had been transformed by Christ, there were now false teachers. There were now false Christians who had infiltrated the church and had produced a lot of confusion and a lot of debate about who Jesus was and what he had said. And so John sits down as a good pastor to these churches who these people he loves and cares for and has shed his own blood and given his life to help proclaim the gospel to. He sits down and writes a letter to them. And this is the letter that we've been studying for the past few months. And he writes a letter to these churches. And in this letter, he seeks to clarify who exactly is a Christian. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? How can you recognize the fruit of someone whose life has been and is being transformed by Christ? And who exactly is qualified to speak on behalf of Christ? What things mark their speech? What things mark their witness? What things mark their testimony? What is a Christian and how can we recognize it? How can we actually have assurance and confidence that we have been transformed by Christ and are being transformed by Christ? That's what this book of 1 John is all about. It, it, John wants us to know and have confidence about whether or not we're Christians. And in that, he wants us to be able to recognize who exactly are counterfeits, who, who's not proclaiming the truth about Christ. And as John has done this, and we've seen this repeatedly because he's just like me, I, I take him as a model in, in pastoral ministry, he's very redundant. He repeats himself a lot. And as I was taught in college, that's a great teaching tool. So I repeat myself a lot. And so does John. He's repeated himself throughout this entire letter. And all of his teaching is hinged on three things. 
Three main truths, the first being that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. I mean, that's the centerpiece of the whole book of 1 John. It's actually the centerpiece of the entire Bible. It's why we're so dedicated to teaching you about Jesus and why we're so committed to taking the time necessary to put things in place to teach our kids this. The entire Bible is about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the one true God. This is a truth that must be trusted by anyone who professes to be a Christian. For those who do not have Jesus as their God, well, we'll get there later. John's teaching has gone on to say for those who actually do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the one true God, and have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus, two big things flow out of that, and this is what he's taught. The first big thing that flows out of that is that we hate sin. We believe and we profess that Jesus is God, and out of that we begin to hate sin. We begin to hate the sin in us that tempts us to disbelieve the truth about Christ, to not trust the truth about Christ. We begin to hate that sin. We begin to desire the transformation that comes from being like Christ. We begin to confess our sin to God and receive his forgiveness. And as we believe that Jesus is God and we begin to hate sin, John says we also begin to love others. We also begin to express the same kind of love that we have received from God through Christ to other people. A sacrificial love. A love that takes us to the edges of our own comfort. It takes us to the edges of our own personal security. But it's a love that reflects the sacrifice and the grace that we have received from God through his son. So he sums it up in three things. Jesus is God, we hate sin, and we love people. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. Gospel-centered. Centered on the person and work of Jesus. Grace-driven. Driven in the transformation that comes from the grace of God through Christ. And mission-minded loving others as we have been loved by Christ. That's why we say that all the time around here. It's why we exist, to cultivate gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people. People who deeply believe and treasure that Jesus is God. People who desperately and deeply hate sin, don't want to tolerate the sin in them. And people who love others, their brothers and sisters in Christ and their neighbor in a way that reflects the way that we have been loved by Christ himself. This is what 1 John is all about. But the centerpiece of the whole thing what the letter revolves around, what the scriptures revolve around, and what our text this morning revolves around is that Christians must believe that Jesus is God. Everything else hinges on that. So 1 John chapter 5, let me go there because my Bible fell while I was talking to you about something else. 1 John chapter 5, we will start in verse 6 where we were last week. I'm just going to read to you to catch up to where we were, and then we'll jump into the rest of those few verses this morning. This is the testimony concerning the Son of God, he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So as we saw last week, John's text, John's argument, all that he's about to say is dealing with what the reasonableness is or how reasonable it is to actually believe that Jesus is God. And he bases this argument, he bases this reasonable, reasonableness on testimony. We talked last week how we're all familiar with testimony how we all take the testimony of another person into account when judging the accuracy or the inaccuracy of a circumstance or of a message. We're very used to testimony in our life. 
And so John bases the reasonableness of believing that Jesus is God on testimony. And his key testimonies were this, the water, the baptism of Christ that was confirmed by God himself and the spirit of God. The cross of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ in our place for our sin. And the spirit of Christ that testified to the truthfulness of those things and the reality that Jesus is is in fact the son of God. And if those things weren't enough, John, John then kind of puts the icing on the cake. And he said, not only the baptism and the cross and the spirit of God testify that Jesus really is the son of God. God the Father, God himself has testified that Jesus is his son. That's what he says in verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. And so last week we stopped by asking, do you believe the testimony that God has given about his son? The testimony that God gave when his son was baptized, when he spoke audibly and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The testimony that God the Father gave audibly when he took Jesus to the top of the mountain with his three closest disciples. And he audibly testified, this is my son in whom I am pleased. And then he said, listen to him. It's easy for us to think, well, if we were there, we would have heard the audible voice of God and sure we would have believed that this is God's son. I want you to understand something. God is still speaking to people and to his people today. This Bible is the word of God. This is the testimony of God about the son of God. So you or I, day or night, can open up his word and God will speak to us through his word regardless of your culture or your language or the day of the week or night or day, it doesn't matter. If we want to hear the testimony of God and the witness of God about his own son and about his own character, all we have to do is open up his word and pray and he will speak to us. And this is why we are so dogged about being a church that's based on the Bible. This is why we take time every week when we gather, if nothing else happens, we open up the Bible, we read the Bible and we teach the Bible. This is why we're taking time throughout the summer to get things in place and structures in place and people equipped to go and help our children understand the Bible because God still speaks to his people through his word and we need God to speak to us. We get confused. We, We get off track. We get dismayed. But when God speaks, that is something that we can bank on. That is a foundation with which we can actually build on. And what we have here is God's word in the scriptures. God's testimony. God's witness about his own son. This is what it's all about. God's word is all about God's son. It's about who his son is and what his son has done. It's not about what we have to do to know him. It's not about what we have to do to be approved by him. It's not what we have to do to be accepted by him. It's about what he has done through his son so that we could be forgiven. This is what God's word is all about. Every book is about Jesus. Every theme is about Jesus. Everything in the Bible is just another witness. That's a part of the great cloud of witness that is singing the praises of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So John's implicit question to those who are listening at the time when this letter would have been read is, what will you do with the testimony of God about his son, Jesus? 
Because even in our life, we know that every testimony demands a response. Testimony isn't just given to be there. It's given there to be responded to. And God has given his testimony, his word about his son, and now it's up to us to respond. It must be responded to. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So God has personally spoken about Jesus. Throughout the scriptures, we have account of the voice of God the Father actually personally speaking about his Son, about Jesus. And from there, God has filled servants, filled his people with his spirit and inspired them to faithfully record the life and the ministry of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection to conquer sin and Satan. This has been inspired and recorded by people. And John's saying this, it's very, very simple. I want to try to be as simple as I can. If you disbelieve that, either by open rebellion, saying I do not believe that Jesus is the son of God, or by passive indifference, simply saying you don't care. If you look at God's testimony about his son and say, I don't believe it or I don't care. Either way, both are a rejection of God's testimony about Jesus. Both are implicitly calling God a liar. It doesn't matter whether you say you don't believe it or whether you say you actually don't care. Both call God a liar. Both call his testimony into question. And so let me just ask you this, just to think about this. There's some questions for you to think about. Who do you trust more than God? And if you trust them, on what grounds do you find their testimony to be more credible than God's? Who do you actually believe more than God himself? And why would you think that God is actually lying to you? Let me help you here. God is not a liar. God is not a deceiver, but, but there is one who is. From the very beginning, Satan's first lie was to tempt God's people to think that we were actually smarter than God, that we don't need God, that we can do just fine on our own, and that maybe God's a liar. Maybe we're smart enough and we've got it all figured out, and maybe he's lying to us. Maybe he's holding back on us. This has been his M.O. from the very beginning. There is a deceiver, and Satan's primary weapon is to tempt us to believe that God is not telling us the truth. His lies are, are at the root of our pride that continually presses, presses into all of us, trying us to get us to, get us to disbelieve and rebel against God. And so here's what Here's what John's saying. You will have to decide who is telling the truth. Whether you believe God and his testimony about his son or whether you believe Satan. You, you're gonna have to decide. If you do not believe that Jesus is God's son and necessary for forgiveness, then what you are saying is that God's testimony is not true and that he is indeed a liar. It's not really that complicated that's really all it is. We make it really complicated. But it's not really more complicated than that. Jesus is God. This is what John is saying. This is the foundation and the bedrock and the cornerstone of our faith, of Christianity. 
And John goes on in verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 may be some of the most amazing verses in the entire New Testament. The consequences of believing God's testimony about his son or denying it could not be more important. The consequences of believing that God is true could not be more important. John is not trying to pick a theological argument. He's not trying to be nitpicky about particular things. Eternal life is at stake. Life is at stake. So what is at stake? What is eternal life? Let me just paint this for you in two very broad strokes to give you an idea of what's at stake in believing the truth about God. Yes, eternal life is something that we as followers of Christ have in our future. We have hope in that our eyes are looking forward to. One day I will take my last breath here on this earth. I will be buried. But in a moment that only God knows, we will be raised to new life. We'll stand before God resurrected. We'll receive the fullness of what God has promised, a resurrected body. I think it's hard for us to even comprehend what eternity is like. Sin will not exist anymore. Satan will not exist in our presence anymore. The only thing that will remain in the end for God's people is eternal life in his presence. A new heavens and a new earth. Our our limited, finite human minds have a hard time even imagining that. I mean, can you imagine a world with no more sin, no more even temptation? You've never seen it. You've never actually tasted it. God's wired a desire for that in you, but you've never actually experienced it. We have that to look forward to. It's a hope that continues to cultivate our faith even in the present day. But eternal life is not just a future hope. Eternal life is a quality of life that's given to God's people to us right now, in this life right now. If you are a follower of Christ, eternal life started for you the day that God's spirit made you new. The day that God's spirit took the heart of stone out of you and put in a heart of flesh and gave you himself so that you would desire him, that you would want to know him, that you would want to please him, that his word would be satisfying to you and reviving to you. This is when eternal life started for you when he opened up your eyes to see his glory and see his beauty in the face of his son, Jesus. This is what eternal life is. So where is it found? John said, God has given us this eternal life and this life is in his son. Eternal life is in Jesus, which is why along with the scriptures, which are all about Jesus every single week, all we talk about ultimately is Jesus. Jesus, 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 because eternal life is at stake. Because the stakes are so high. It's not a hobby horse that we get on. It's not an argument that we want to pick It's not a philosophical idea that we want to debate. Eternal life is at stake. Every single week, it's God's word about God's son. Jesus, 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 because that's it. Without him, there is no eternal life. And this is what John is trying to say. We could come in here every single week and talk about heaven. 
Talk about resurrected bodies. Talking about being free from temptation and sin. Talk about the hope that is to come. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have that. We'll be fooling you. You'll be running down a rabbit trail missing the main thing. Eternal life is not something for you if you don't have Jesus. You're not headed for an eternity in the presence of God. Now, I want to say this because we've got a little bit of time left because it's a, something that I'm surprised at how often I actually hear it because I, I want to think it's not true, but it is. There, there are so many people I find myself getting into conversations with and I've, I've learned to continue to thank God for the opportunity. But there are people, and some of you may be in here, and I, w- I want to help you this morning, who believe that eternal life with God is something that's to be found because someone that you know or someone that you love loves Jesus. That if you spend time with them, if you hang around with them, if you go to groups with them, if you go to dinner with them instead of something else, then God must love you too because they love God a lot. Maybe your mom loves you and your mom loves Jesus. Your mom prays for you and has ever since you were two. Praise God. But you're not getting eternal life because your mom loves Jesus. This is called the heresy of participatory redemption. That you can participate in someone else's faith. It's not the case. I don't remember who said it. I heard somebody preaching one day, but I, and it's stuck in my brain forever. I, I wish I could remember so I could tell you who. But they said the line into eternity is single file. You don't get in in a bunch. You must believe that Jesus is God. Your faith must be your own. Are you in Christ? Do you hate sin? Do you love Jesus? Is he your God? Eternal life is at stake in the way that you answer those questions. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is the bottom line. Do you have Jesus? It's really that simple. You have an enemy and a deceiver who wants to make it more complicated than that. He, he wants to get you chasing rabbit trails. He wants to get you running down trails that will lead you straight to an eternity apart from God. He wants your mind and your soul to be focused on experiences that you had as a kid. Pastors who were unkind to you. Churches who were unkind to you. Philosophical arguments about particular random things. He wants you focusing on all of those things and running down all those trails so that you will miss the main thing. But there is only one main thing. Jesus. If he can get you to just stay focused on anything but Jesus, then he's deceived you. And he's got you. There is only one central issue in this. There is really only one dog in this whole hunt. Jesus is God. He said he was God that had come down from eternity. He proved it with his virgin birth, his sinless life, his death in our place for our sins, and God's vindication of him by raising him from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of God right now where he rules and reigns, fulfilling the promises that he had made, starting with sending the spirit that raised him from the dead to give us new life. This is his own testimony about himself. All of the witnesses have testified to this. The spirit, the water, the blood, the apostles, the the writers of scripture. God the Father himself has testified to this truth about Jesus. 
I stand here on behalf of all the pastors of this church. This is our testimony about Jesus. He is God. He was born to a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life in your place, and he died to pay the price for your sins. God raised him from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God. He has sent his spirit, and he promises to one day return and make all things new. This is the testimony concerning Jesus. What it comes down to then is what you say. What do you say about this testimony, about Jesus? Everyone else has spoken. God's spoken. Disciples have spoken. Scripture speaks. We stand here as a church saying this is our testimony. How about you? You and Jesus. Truth or lie? You and Jesus, yes or no? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. John says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is why he did it. So that those of you who are in the church, those of you who are God's people, those of you who have professed faith in the person and work of Jesus, so that you could have assurance that what God has said and what Jesus testified to in his life, death, and resurrection and what God had promised is true. And you can have confidence in this life now about the quality of life that you have and the spirit of God that has raised your soul to new life. I mean, honestly, so many of us, I'm not sure there's a person in this room who's a follower of Christ who has not struggled at some point in their journey in following Christ with a sense of assurance and confidence. I talk with people all the time who are wrestling with this. I want you to be encouraged that the testimony of scripture, the witness of scripture to the fact that it's God's word and it's God's true word about who he is and who his son is, that so much of God's word is focused on giving God's people confidence and assurance that what he has said about himself really is true. I want you to be encouraged about that because God knew that it would be a struggle. God knew that there was an enemy. God knew that there was a tempter. God knew from the very beginning before he created anything that this would be a struggle for his people. So, so much of his word is focused on giving his people confidence and assurance that what he said about himself is true. Assurance is powerful. We'll talk about that more next week. But assurance is precious. And it can be very, very fragile. And every other religion and philosophy on this earth and every single lie that the enemy wants to hiss into your, into your ear, that twists the truth of scripture, every single one of those lies whispers to you that your assurance is related to what you do for God, not what God has done for you. And they do it in a, mil a million different ways. But at the core, every single one of them is trying to tell you and convince you of what you need to do to please God so that you can be confident that he loves you. And every time you move the ball forward, Every time you take a step forward in what those things say, there's a little more added on and a little more added on. So no matter how hard you try and how much you do, you never really know and you never really get it all quite right. And you spend your whole life without assurance and without confidence or certainty that God does indeed love you, that God has forgiven you, 
that you and God are okay. And when that's the case, God becomes this mean and and moody and and capricious God who, who makes you jump through hoops while he changes all the rules along the way. And you never really know where you stand and where you are. John says, this is the testimony about God and about his son. God is love and he loves you. He sent his son to save you from yourself. His son, Jesus, who is God, died for your sin and rose from the grave and accomplished your redemption on your behalf. All you need to do is believe in him. And John says, if you have the son, you have eternal life. If you don't have the son, you do not have eternal life. If you have Jesus, you can know. You can know with confidence and certainty in this life now that you do indeed have eternal life, which is a gift from God. You didn't do anything to earn it, so you can't do anything to dis-earn it. You get that? You didn't do anything to earn it, and so you can't do anything to dis-earn it or to lose it. You can know with confidence that God loves you. You can know that your sins are forgiven. Everything, all of them, past, present, and future. Jesus died on the cross for them, knowing all of them full well. And when he said it was finished, it was finished. You can know that. So give them to him. Give him your sin. Confess your sin to him. Give it to him and receive his forgiveness and receive eternal life. Don't get stuck in this perpetual cycle of death. Don't get stuck in this perpetual cycle of believing the lies about who God is. Give yourself to him and receive forgiveness and redemption from him. Believe in Jesus. Know that he loves you and live your life. This is what John is saying. Believe in Jesus. He is the Son of God. Believe in Jesus. He is the Son of God. Trust Him. Know Him. Be forgiven by Him. And then live your life. Live your life. This is what, along with John, I want to invite you to this morning. I want to invite you to Jesus. The forgiveness of sins, the assurance of salvation and the joy of eternal life. He lived perfectly before God in your place. And and though he was without sin, though he was tempted in every way that you are, he was without sin. And though he was without sin, he willingly laid his life down on the cross to suffer and for the holy wrath of God to be exhausted in his body, in your place, for your sin. This is what Jesus, the Son of God, did. And he died. And three days later, in acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, God the Father raised Jesus, the Son, from the dead by the power of God the Holy Spirit, conquering Satan, sin, and death. It all boils down to this. If you believe God's testimony about God's Son, your sins will be forgiven. In your eternal life, now and forever, will be in the hands of a good God who loves you. Loves you so much that he saves you from yourself.
And now your responsibility individually and our responsibility corporately is to respond to him. Believe in Jesus. Know that he loves you. And then live your life. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we thank you for your word. Your word and your testimony about your character, about your love, and about your goodness, and most importantly, how all those things are best seen to us in the perfect life of your son, Jesus. We thank you for your testimony of how you have loved us so much that you devised a way to save us from ourselves without compromising anything about you. So God, I would ask for your glory, for our joy, that your spirit would do whatever was necessary in the hearts of every person in here for us to see your glory and your beauty in the face of your son and know Jesus. To believe in Jesus. To trust in Jesus. To receive forgiveness. And to have the joy of eternal life and confidence in this life now of who you are and what you've done. We ask this, Lord, for your glory. Amen.